Thank you for joining us for the 2022 NACDD President's Challenge podcast series. I'm your host, Christy Peer, NACDD Board President from the Maryland Department of Health. In this series, we are talking with leaders around the country about resilience and well-being in our communities, our teams at work, and ourselves to identify ways to apply lessons learned in public health. We are framing the conversations in four categories or buckets based on the socio-ecological model, societal, community, interpersonal, and individual. Resilience is defined broadly, typically dependent on the context. Ann Maston's definition of resilience frames the goals, the capacity of a system to adapt successfully to disturbances that threaten the viability, function, or development of the system. So let's get started. On today's episode of our President's Challenge podcast, I'm speaking with Dan Foy from Gallup, a global analytics and advice firm working with leaders to understand and address opportunities within their organizations. They have a wealth of knowledge around trends in the workplace. Our conversation dives into what resilience looks like at the interpersonal level of the socio-ecological model. Having collected data on employee engagement from over 35 million people across the world, Dan, can you tell us about your work with Gallup? What are your focus areas and what also energizes you most about your role? Thank you, Christy. It's great to be here. I'm really, really excited to be chatting with you today. So in terms of what I do, my focus areas, so I, I kind of have three domains that I, I spend a lot of time in. One of those is federal government research and development projects, generally considered. Data science work, different ways to approach data collection and analysis. The other one is public health, which is how we got connected through NACDD and the work that you all do, really focusing on how do we use some of the insights that Gallup has developed over the years and and our ability to, to collect data and understand the, the will and the needs of, of the public in order to inform the kind of public health and decisions that your chronic disease directors and your members are working on. And then the last area, which I think, you know, from the sound of it, we're going to get a chance to talk about today quite a bit is well-being, which is really one of Gallup's core research areas and an area that I'm personally very passionate about and and something where I think we do some of our best work as an organization with the clients and, and other organizations that we partner with. I've also recently been doing a lot of work in the healthcare space more broadly. So I mentioned public health, but I also do a lot of work across healthcare with different providers, payers, folks in the in the research sides of things as well, trying to help them understand how to get the most out of their organizations, how to deal with some of the challenges that they're facing from a workforce perspective, how to better serve the patients that they care for, how to be more effective and, and more impactful overall. You also asked about kind of what energizes me, second part of the question there. Really, when I look at Gallup, I go back to our founding and our core mission. And our founder, George Gallup, who started the company as a polling firm in the 1930s, he had this really fantastic quote about the use of public opinion polling at the time when this really was a new approach to understanding what was going on with the electorate. And he said, if democracy is supposed to be about the will of the people, shouldn't someone find out what that will is? And I think that that founding mission really draws through everything that we do today 
in the public space where we're working with communities or, or elected leaders, as well as with organizations that we partner with, commercial organizations or, or healthcare organizations, as, as it may be, helping their employees be heard, helping their patients be heard, helping citizens be heard. And so it's a really kind of high mission area to be in. It really feels energizing. And it's great to see that that need that was uncovered about 90 years ago is still something that is, is so important today. In addition to that, Gallup, we talk about ourselves as, a, as being a consulting firm a lot of times. And so it's, it's about research, it's about polling, but it's also about partnerships and, and having the opportunity to work with different organizations to really get inside and understand what are the challenges that they're facing. It's, as a professional, it's just kind of fun to be able to moonlight with different industries, different organizations. It, it keeps things interesting. And then we also get to embrace their missions as well. And so that becomes really powerful. So in some ways, as a, as a consultant, our mission is to take on the mission of the clients that we work with and, and help them achieve it. And so that always is energizing. The other thing that I think is pretty exciting is really looking at some of the technologies that are out there now, some of the data that's available that didn't used to be available before. When Gallup started, um, there wasn't a lot of data on people that was available at a population level. Uh, And now we're in a world where we're sort of drowning in it. And there's so much data and so much information. It's a challenge, but it's also a really exciting opportunity. It feels like an exciting time to, to be in this space, to be looking at new technologies, new approaches to gathering information, to making sense of it definitely gets me up every day from an intellectual curiosity standpoint as well. That's great. I love your passion around really learning the will of the people and really understanding where people are coming from. Today, we really want to have some conversations around resilience. And as we go into this third year of our global pandemic, really thinking through what impacts us on an individual level. And we've been talking a lot about work and what impacts us at the work we do and impacts our employees. Can you give us a little bit more about what Gallup is tracking related to employee resilience and well-being? Yeah, definitely. And these last three years have been, wow, what a, what a sea change and, and what a tumultuous time for everybody in, in the workplace and beyond. One of the interesting things being at Gallup is we've, as I mentioned earlier, we've been tracking a lot of metrics related to the population and the workplace specifically for a long time. And and the nice thing about that is we have these trend lines that reach back to well before the pandemic. And so we can really calibrate and, and measure the impact that these last few years have had on, on all of us, on, on workers, on the economy, on families and households. There's two metrics that we really tend to focus on here. One of those is purely inside the workplace, and that's this metric we call employee engagement, something that that Gallup's been working on for a long time and and really focuses on what are the the fundamental need. We like to think about it similar to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you're, you're familiar with that from psychological literature, for the workplace. So what are the basic needs that people have around expectations, materials and equipment to do their job well? Moving up the ladder, what are the individual needs that people need to, to have addressed? So they, they need feedback. They need opportunities to learn and grow. We need relationships. So some of the higher order needs, the team needs, collaboration and having a best friend at work is one of the questions we're, we're famous for, as well as a lot of confidence in leadership and really a good sense for the future of where the organization's going. And, and so what we do is we measure these different topic areas, and then we 
condense those into a single employee engagement measure. And so we, we classify employees as either being engaged or, or disengaged or actively disengaged. And when we look at that engagement metric, which you can kind of think of as a, as a health of your workplace in some ways, we saw over the last decade just really steady, gradual growth in employee engagement across the entire U.S. economy. Every year we were seeing it increase by about a point or so overall when we look at the entire active workforce. And it even actually included to increase or continued to increase in the first first phases of the pandemic. We, we didn't see a, a real movement in that number at the start of the pandemic. But very recently, over the last quarter, over the last six months, we've seen a decline in employee engagement at an economy-wide level, again, for the first time in a decade that we've seen this number start to trend down. And it's actually, over the last few months, given up half of the gains that it made over this time frame. So you look at something like this that's been a really steady, consistent indicator of the health of the U.S. workforce as a whole, and seeing it start to slip is definitely alarming and definitely validates what I think a lot of people have experienced over the last few years and a lot of the other headline issues we see around uh, just retaining talent or the, the great resignation people talk about, just what some of the challenges are in the workplace right now that has been so disruptive. The other metric that we look at beyond employee engagement, I talked about this one a little bit earlier as one of my passions, is this metric of well-being. And so our well-being measure, again, it's something we've been studying for a very long time. You can think about it as a a more all-encompassing measure. So we're not just looking at how people feel in the workplace, but we're also looking at their lives as a whole. And this is something that we've been tracking really since the early 2000s, not just in the U.S., but internationally. And so we we designed this measure to have really strong cross-cultural validity and, and to be able to compare people in different walks of life from all over the world with one sort of standard outcome measure. And so in this case, what we do is we we ask a couple of questions. It's what we call the a self-anchoring scale, so a Cantrell self-anchoring scale, if anybody wants to, to look that up. But we're essentially asking people to evaluate where they feel their lives stand today, taking all things into consideration. And we use the image of a ladder, um, asking them, what step on the ladder do you feel that you stand today? And a ladder numbered from zero to 10. We capture that number, and then we also capture where they think they would stand on that ladder five years from now. And then what we do is we look at those two numbers in combination, and we're able to classify respondents as either being thriving, struggling, or suffering on this measure of well-being. And you can think about that as, again, sort of an overall outcome measure for how people's lives are doing as a whole. It's very important that it includes both current state and future state, that hope, that aspiration for the future. It's a big part of why that measure works so well. And similar to what we saw with employee engagement, there's been some real change over the last couple of years in this overall thriving outcome measure when we look at the U.S. workforce. This is a metric that has had historically more volatility than what we see with employee engagement, where I describe that sort of steady growth over time. In the case of well-being, it tends to move around more with current events. And so when you look at economic changes that are happening, the last time we saw it really dip significantly before the COVID pandemic was at the depths of the 2008 financial crisis. People were losing their jobs. People were worried about their financial security. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear happening at that time. And we saw it drop to, to really low numbers relative to where it had been historically in the U.S. Overall, though, we have seen that that metric has tended to trend upwards over time. Again, kind of just encouraging. We, we want to see this as a society. We want to see that our country is moving in the right direction. And, and our data shows that with some peaks and valleys, it has been moving in the right direction overall. When COVID hit, we saw 
essentially, if you imagine the, the trend line, so you've got sort of a steady graph of numbers moving up and down a little bit. If you look at the graph during COVID, it looks like a heart attack. All of a sudden, the volatility that we saw in that measure with the initial shutdowns at the very start of the pandemic, and really, we can all think back to just the intense level of fear at that time. Masks weren't available. People couldn't get toilet paper. We didn't know when kids were going to go back to school or if they were going to go back to school. And no one really had a sense for just how how dangerous this thing was at that stage. And what we saw in the measure is people's hope for the future just plummeted. And really, people were people were fearful. They were thinking about today. They weren't thinking about where things were going and, and were really pessimistic about how things would turn out. Within a few months, once people started to settle in, humans were, were adaptable people, were adaptable as a species, that number shifted back and people started to see that that initial fear was perhaps not as bad. It certainly was bad and we've seen a lot of horrible consequences and a lot of loss of life and, and illness and, and long COVID and all sorts of challenges coming out of it. But at the same time, people adjusted to a new way of living and we saw that that number rebounded fairly quickly and actually rebounded to levels higher than where it was before, that people had this surge of optimism. And then the roller coaster kicked in, and we had the Delta wave and another wave of lockdowns, and we had Omicron and another wave of lockdowns. And each time that COVID surged, well-being dropped, and we saw this really consistent pattern. The encouraging piece is it has recovered each time, and I'm, I'm expecting that as we see new numbers come out this summer and, and knock on wood with the way things are going and, and vaccinations ramping up and, and seems variants are maybe a little less dangerous than some of the early ones that we've encountered, we are going to see a thriving summer for a lot of people in the U.S. So hopefully that trend continues and we move through this volatility. But the thing that I, I can't emphasize enough is just the extreme swings in this metric over the course of the pandemic. And we think about you know, sort of the, the trauma that goes along with, with those swings over time. So people have been through a lot, and that's what our data backs up. That's so interesting. There's so many things to unpack here. And I think as we move forward to how we can support our teams and our staff, as we move forward from this pandemic and some of the lessons learned, what suggestions or ideas do you have that organizations and employers, team leads and supervisors could attend to if they are going to successfully support employee well-being. And I think too, some of what you brought up around rebound indicates to me that there is some resiliency going on here. And so just also wondering about tapping into maybe some of that underlying resilience as well. That's a great question. And I do think that is the that's the natural place to go when we think about we've we've seen this volatility, we've experienced this volatility. What can we as as leaders, as as managers, as team members within organizations do to be able to impact this? It's definitely on a lot of people's minds right now, and it's something we're we're having a lot of conversations around. I think if you looked at two big steps to start with, just to keep it simple, the first thing is getting senior leadership on board, and you really have to see a genuine commitment to well-being within the organization. And it, it's one of these things, people have talked about well-being for a while in organizations, and it tends to be a little bit of an HR feel-good initiative sort of thing. And you, you, people pay lip service to it, but you don't necessarily see the action and the follow-through. I think that that's a challenge to overcome. And in order to get that senior leadership on board, one of the things we really encourage is to, to look at the data and look at the outcomes related to well-being. And in a lot of the research that Gallup's done around this measure, I, I talked about kind of how we collect that data on, on thriving outcomes. But when you look at, at individuals, at organizations, at communities that have high rates of thriving, 
they do better across the board on a number of other important metrics. At the individual level, there are really compelling data linking overall well-being to health outcomes, to adherence with doctor's recommendations, to the kind of lifestyle things that, that we know are important for managing chronic disease, for instance, that people who, who do those things and people who have high well-being are more likely to do those things, and, and people that do those things are more likely to have high well-being. At the individual level, it's maybe the least controversial to, to point to those examples, and people can grasp those pretty intuitively. When we scale up from that, though, and you look at the organizational level, I mentioned the employee engagement measure earlier. That's something that's a little more longstanding in industry, and, and people are pretty familiar with the idea of how your employees are doing and, and their employee engagement relating to things like productivity, like turnover, like absenteeism, like safety incidents or, or mistakes on the job. And we see that really consistently, that, that teams have, that have high engagement are more effective teams. Well, we also see that well-being, that organizations where individuals are more likely to be thriving, are more likely to be engaged. And so those same kind of outcomes are really consistent. I've seen some client examples where if we looked at individuals who are very likely to say or to strongly agree that their organization cares about their well-being, 90% of those individuals are fully engaged, according to that measure I was describing earlier. That means they're more productive, they're less likely to be absent. They're less likely to utilize healthcare services, which is a big cost driver for a lot of businesses because they're taking care of themselves and they're showing up in their best self to work every day. So there really are these bottom line impacts that business leaders should care about when it comes to well-being and the performance of their teams. And it's a really great intervention point to be able to focus in because you can really get people excited about driving their own well-being and it, it resonates with people. So kind of getting over that gap of the, the feel-good initiative piece and recognizing that it actually makes business sense to focus on people's well-being is such a, such a hurdle for organizations. The other one, you know, moving away from the senior leadership, is really activating managers. A lot of the research Gallup has done has, has just drawn out the importance of really that direct supervisor or frontline manager. In a lot of cases, that individual is the, your employee's most important connection to the organization. That's who they're going to go to with questions. That's who's giving them guidance, who's helping to develop their performance, who's having career conversations with them. A lot of times that's a mentor and that's their most prominent leader that they're interacting with. Those are the individuals that need to be driving well-being. And so helping managers understand that, similar to with senior leaders, this is part of their job description. A lot of times you've got old school managers who... You know, they, they have the attitude that as soon as my people clock out, it's not my business anymore. My responsibility ends at the shop floor or the, or the front door to the organization. And we really are seeing a lot of organizations and a lot of great managers who are starting to shift that attitude and recognize that, that employees really want their manager to be concerned with their whole life, that they want them to be helping them manage work-life balance, that they want them to recognize what they're passionate about, what their aspirations are, and to know about the other challenges that they're facing. Because frankly, we're all fooling ourselves if we think that things that are happening at home and stresses that are going on in other parts of life are, are not affecting the kind of people we show up at work every day. And so getting that recognition is the first step, but then really empowering managers as well. And I'm, I'm very sensitive to this because a lot of times we say, well, the manager's got to fix this. And managers will say back, right, after I do these hundred other things on my list that you're telling me I'm responsible for. And so a big piece of it, I think, is also just helping them recognize how well-being conversations and, and engaging with their teams around well-being fits into their normal role, fits into productivity, fits into task work, fits into working on timelines and challenges together as a team, and then empowering them as well with resources. And I think that that's an area where there's so many things organizations can do to really just help managers 
understand the kind of questions to ask, understand the resources that are available in the organization. A lot of times we see that managers have higher rates of burnout than their employees do and that they're, they're struggling just as bad or if not worse than their employees. Organizations need to be taking care of the managers, empowering them, giving them the opportunity to be that connection that the employee needs with the organization. There's a lot of other steps you can go about, and we can get you know different clients and different organizations are going to have different challenges. But I think those two principles, getting senior leadership on board and activating managers, that's really the key to success with a well-being initiative. Well, thank you. I would like to go back to some of the overarching comments you made. And what strikes me is really laying the foundation to then set up the environment for more resilience, for being able to address overall well-being is what it feels like to me. It's kind of hearing what you were saying about those employees who have higher well-being are also the ones who seem to fare better and are more resilient. And thinking about working through this, setting up the foundational underpinnings, if you will, in our workplaces and our teams is so critical. One question around the manager level, and this is maybe something you may not necessarily be able to answer, is how do we empower those middle managers if they're in a bureaucracy, if they're in a large company, where they may not feel they have power. It is a huge challenge. And I think a lot of organizations and a lot of managers, unfortunately, what you're describing is their reality, that they are they are facing challenges. And for different reasons in different places, sometimes it's the company culture. Sometimes there's a lot of compliance expectations in place and the, the manager role is, is very prescriptive. It's very defined what they should be doing and, and what their, their scope is. I think a, a couple of things that are are really critical when we think about sort of what can leaders do to really support these efforts or, or what can managers do in the, in the face of these challenges. I think a lot of it, if you're looking for a place to start, it comes down to to walking the walk and to understanding that, you know, we really need to see that organizations are shifting towards overcoming some of these ingrained biases within the organization um, when it comes to things like mental health and flexibility in the workplace. And, and, and we really recognize that there are some clear things that employees are asking for and that as a manager, you know, in some ways, you have the opportunity, obviously, within the scope of your control to be able to make the decisions that you can to improve the working environment for your team when you can do that. But other times, it's even just helping them understand how to take advantage of maybe the lanes that are available to them. And so one of the examples, I, mean, I think the first example is maybe just you look at like conversations around mental health, which has become a much more prominent thing in, recently within workplaces that leaders and managers and employees are, are recognizing that this is something that, that should be talked about and needs to be talked about within the workplace. This is maybe a success example. I think we're starting to get to a point where more people recognize that it's okay to not be okay and that they're demonstrating that. And so we have kind of prominent examples of leaders sharing examples of the struggles that they've gone through and and really opening the door for for that kind of a, a view and a kind of a framework. And and I, I don't know about you, I definitely feel that over the course of over the course of my career, this has been a shift that I've seen for sure. The number of times that I, I hear colleagues talking about, you know, the anxiety they feel over a deadline, not something that they would have been talking about ten years ago necessarily. So I think that that's an encouraging example. 
where we need to see more of this is around some of the things that we know are really key drivers for well-being specifically. So one of the biggest ones is flexibility. And when people talk about what they want from their job, and we, we do these interviews, we've done them with, with the workforce for a long time, the, the desire for that work-life flexibility, for flexible schedules, for the ability to work when you want to, it obviously doesn't work in every setting. There's some times where you just you have to have staffing levels at the levels that, that they need to be, and you know, you've got to have somebody on call or, or, or in the office in order to, to deal with what needs to be dealt with. And But still recognizing that even in those situations, there are opportunities to help people have the kind of flexibility that they need. And so I, you know, I love the examples of, I've got to leave early today because you know, my kids got their recital, or I'm going to take Friday off so we can travel to a volleyball tournament because my kids are in this and this is an important thing for my family and, and my overall well-being. And for leaders to recognize that that's not a sign of an employee who doesn't value their job. That's a sign of an employee that values their well-being. And that's the kind of employee you want on the job. And so how do you adapt things? And there's different solutions for different industries, right? You know, scheduling pools and, and swapping shifts and things like that, maybe in a healthcare setting. Or There's a lot of ways that you can go about solving this. But a big part of it, you know, and I mentioned this walking the walk, is leaders need to model these behaviors. And so if people hear that there's a policy but they see that their leader never follows that policy or never takes advantage of that policy, what's the implicit message that's going to that employee then? We talk about this a lot with, you know, we, we encourage people to to be fully present at work and then we encourage people to, to unplug when they leave work. And then if you've got a manager who's sending you emails at 2 a.m. on Saturday and they do that every week, well, what's that signal about what we expect people to be doing over their weekends, right? And, and so recognizing that managers, that leaders in the organization, they can shape their own behaviors in a way that signals to the organization that that we support this. The other area I think a lot about is you know, what do what do kind of total rewards policies look like in the future? And I think there's really interesting ways to start thinking about this. In the public health space, we talk a lot about social determinants of health. I think we need to start talking about social determinants of retention and what are the factors in a person's life that enables them or is a barrier for them being successful in their career. A lot of times, if you look at the social determinants of health analog and you know, we talk about, do people have the access to, to food? Do they have access to the environments that they need? Do they have transportation to get to their medical appointments? Do they have childcare? These same factors hold for the workplace. Um, so do people have access to reliable transportation to get to their job? If you've got an employee who's late, are you, are you figuring out why that employee is consistently late? Maybe there's a challenge there and a, a barrier that can be overcome where the organization may have the ability to, to help out in a way that is going to be really deeply meaningful for that employee. It's going to improve their overall life, and it's going to make them more effective for the organization. You're going to be able to retain them more. So I think thinking through this framework as leaders and recognizing that we need to start moving in this direction, I think that's a big part of, of the solution to your question of how do we get around these barriers we have today, even if we're not doing wholesale policy change within an organization. There's a lot of small steps we can be doing with, with what we have now. That is all the time we have today. Thank you so much to our special guest, Dan Foy from Gallup, who shared with us his amazing work in understanding trends in the workplace related to employee resilience and well-being. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to this NACD President's Challenge podcast. Please join us for part two as we continue our conversation with Dan to focus on what organizations can do to support employee resilience. 